Hello and welcome to today's episode of Tranquil Awakenings with me, Debbie Ison. On today's episode, I'm going to be in conversation with Rosalind Palmer, who is a rapid transformational therapist, hypnotherapist and NLP coach. We will be sharing information about her journey to becoming a therapist and her life story, as well as what you can do to really connect in with your superpower and purpose. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you ever so much for being here today. So would you like to just introduce yourself as who you are? Well, thank you for having me. It's <laughs> lovely to be here. Um, and I've had a lovely journey getting here. What a beautiful day. I'm Rosalind Palmer mm -hmm. and I'm a transformational therapist and coach. So I'm qualified in rapid transformational therapy, mm -hmm. which is a hybrid therapy that combines clinical hypnotherapy CBT, NLP, and some psychotherapy. Excellent. I'm also a clinical hypnotherapist mm -hmm. and I'm an NLP coach. So Brilliant. that's a lot of abbreviations. <laughs> um, but what it means is I can do the deep dives. I can work longer times with people if it's more coaching. Mm -hmm. But it's all ultimately about transforming their life. Yeah. And I suppose my strap line is allowing people to have lives that feel as good on the inside as they look on the outside. Mm -hmm. So obviously you are a therapist and it sounds like you're a very experienced therapist now, but all the way back to sort of where it first began, what made you decide you wanted to be a therapist? Well, I have a background in PR and marketing, but mostly PR. And I think it's funny, I... I had a Twinkle album when I was really little. It's, right. This is showing how old I am because you probably don't even remember that. But it was the it was the little comic I used to have when mm -hmm. I was growing up. And when I was about seven, the annual I got in the front, it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. And I'd written an actress and a doctor in my spare time. <laughs> or it might have been a doctor and an actress in my spare time. And I think that kind of sums up PR, to be honest, mm -hmm. because... It's very much about that front and about putting things forward. But the kind of PR I ultimately ended up doing in the 90s is you're protecting people's brands, but also you're protecting them often. You're protecting their egos. Okay. Um, you're stopping them from harm. Sometimes you get paid for what doesn't appear in the press mm -hmm. as much as you get paid for what does appear in the press. You're obviously crafting messages you often are taking quite complex things and making them relatively simple and straightforward and understandable. And so in that respect, I think I was a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because ultimately it's about communication as yeah. well and understanding people, reading people. Also, very importantly, in the 90s, I became a go-to PR agent for the emerging new age as it was then and seen as very out there okay personal development gurus so i worked for tony robbins wow i did his pr i worked for robert holden who runs the happiness clinic mm -hmm. in bristol i worked for brandon bays who created the journey which is probably the first epigenetic mind body healing uh -huh. modality i worked for edward de bono who created lateral thinking yeah so I was very immersed in that world at a time when you know my mother thought I'd joined a cult and it was all very <laughs> woo woo and out there 
And I actually trained at that time, probably around the mid 90s in both hypnotherapy with Paul McKenna mm -hmm. and NLP with Richard Bandler, wow. the creator of NLP, mm -hmm. because if you are a good PR or communications officer, you understand what your client does. Yes. And so I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to truly understand it. So I have actually been certified in these modalities since then, but I didn't actually practice mm -hmm. them. I didn't have paying individual clients. I used it to inform my PR, my communication, and also to inform the growth of my own PR company and, yep. um, you know, help with staff development, et cetera. So, yeah, I feel I've been a therapist for a really long time <laughs> as a therapist with the certificates on my wall in the things I spoke to you about. I've been a therapist. I think this is my ninth year. Wonderful. And that came after my second divorce and the menopause, my father dying, possibly a kind of a midlife you know, who am I, where am I, where am I going? And I was working in marketing. I was head of marketing and communications for the Leprosy Mission, which is an international yeah. charity, which was incredibly rewarding. But I definitely reached that what next glass ceiling point. Mm -hmm. And being rather on my knees with the divorce and the menopause and my dad dying, a bunch of other things, it was really synchronicity. So Marissa Peer, who created RTT, yep. an email dropped in my inbox and it said, I've created this new modality. It's certified. Would you like to be on the inaugural pioneer intake? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. And so I did it, took to it like a duck to water and then became a trainer for her for the Amazing. next 10 courses and then a mentor. And so I became very immersed in that um, discipline in RTT. And the rest, as they say, is <laughs> <laughs> Well, a journey. Yes. And I think it's amazing you've had those skills for so many years. I mean, did you find, as well as helping the clients you were working with, did you find they had an impact on who you were as an individual? Totally. I wouldn't be here today talking to you. I, I genuinely would not be alive. Well. Um, it, it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. So I, in the 80s, when I first went into PR, I ended up working at Lynn Frank's PR, which is what that TV series, Absolutely Fabulous, is based on. Oh, okay. So it was like the leading PR company, probably in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. It was, um, and it was crazy. I mean, I, I think it's, if you've seen Ab Fab and if you've seen Wolf of Wall Street, I would say the truth lays somewhere in the middle. <laughs> And I'm a girl from, uh, you know, quite humble background. My parents were grocers. I lived above the shop in my early years and I went to a comprehensive school. So this was not really my world. Yeah. Um, the world of celebrity and fashion designers, Concord and the Orient Express. You know, I was part of it, but I think I always felt like a, an outlier. The good thing was that my health was really terrible at that time. Um, okay. I'd had some really severe childhood illnesses, really mm -hmm. severe. I, I effectively died when I was a child, with just pumped full of antibiotics and various other things. And I'd always been that weak child. Yep. And being in the fast lane, 80 hour weeks, burning the candle at both ends, you know, work hard, play hard, drinking a lot. Luckily, I never took the drugs. 
for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I was surrounded by them, but I didn't. I was really on my knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was only 25, 26. Okay. And every time I went back to the GP, it would be, well, we'll put you on this. And then it would be, how long am I going to be on it? Indefinitely. We'll put you on, how long am I going to be on it? Indefinitely. Yes. I had an emergency tonsillectomy at 26. So I really was not in a good physical state. And of course, then you're not in a good mental state. And luckily, all the people at Lynn Franks um, were very alternative at that time. And most of them were Buddhist. Um, They were macrobiotic. They were vegans. They were into Ayurvedic medicine and acupuncture and shiatsu and kundalini yoga and all these things I'd never ever heard of mm-hmm. and again that my mom thought I'd absolutely joined a cult <laughs> and thank god because I embraced all of that mm-hmm. um moved away from western medicine um and that western toxicity and Although there has been, you know, quite a few bumps in the road since then, like I had cancer 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't be here today. I just know yeah. it. Um, I, I genuinely don't think I would still be alive, either because mentally or physically I wouldn't have sustained mm-hmm. the journey I've been on. And I think that's something really important, isn't it, that the whole society we're brought up in doesn't really look for those alternative approaches particularly in the past things aren't getting better yes but also we're told and conditioned that you have to keep working harder faster doing more and more and we can't sustain it no the do more to get more hamster wheel um and you know i you and i do a very similar thing for a living and i was the a i was the a list girl you know (laughs) so i was the one for my family that couldn't fail and that's not to be critical of my parents. They were wonderful, but I was the first in my bloodline from both my mother and father to ever go to university. Yeah. You know, I was the great white hope, if you like. I <laughs> was the girl that was going to break, you know, that you know, more working class background, if you like. And, I mean, my parents did really well. They, you know, they were grocers, but they ended up with several shops, but only through sheer hard work. Mm-hmm. But my mum's mum worked in a mill in Keithley in Yorkshire and died at 69 of yep. pretty much emphysema. My dad's mum had the grocery shop before him and that went back two generations. She was one of, I think, 15. I can never quite remember yep. it. She was born in 1897. And her brothers ended up all down all down the pit being killed in World War One. You know, so I come from that background where you didn't go to <laughs> university <laughs> and then, you know, meet the Rolling Stones and have breakfast with Daniel Day-Lewis. That wasn't really um, my, my background. But it put a lot of pressure on me yeah. because I genuinely felt I could not fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you are that one that can't fail and there's no safety net, no safety net because you don't come from money, you don't yeah. come from privilege, you don't come from entitlement you come from sheer darn hard work mm-hmm. um that just drives you on and on and on and on and on literally yes. to to the point where you will kill yourself mm-hmm. so what made you get to the point where you realized do you know what if i carry on in this way i'm going to end up sort of burning out i think 
with all the work I did with all the people I mentioned earlier, and because of the background and the friends I had, and I was embracing, you know, all of these alternative medicines activities and particularly through my Ayurvedic doctor by the mid-90s I knew I was on I remember him saying to me one day you know I paraphrase but it was along the lines of it's quite depressing seeing you because I'm just a sticking plaster and I'm not sure if you're going to have the physical or the mental breakdown first gosh and I was in that place I would say for a good five years Mm -hmm. maybe longer maybe longer yeah um and so again the trap was we were I had my own PR company we had a huge house huge but then you have a huge mortgage yeah um I adopted two children they went to special schools or specialist schools very expensive you start to live the lifestyle yeah um, we had a villa in Spain but it's very expensive mm-hmm. that lifestyle and I always felt it was on me yeah, always. And so I'd be the one awake at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. going, how am I going to pay for 21 salaries? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to pay the school fees? And, you know, people listening might think, oh, yeah, I'll be sark. But it, it, it's real. It's and, a big pressure, and isn't that it? pressure is enormous. And so for probably five years or maybe more, it felt like an enormous trunk. And the sticking plasters were what got me through. Mm-hmm. And there were some really good sticking plasters, Ayurvedic medicine. I had a massage, a masseuse who came to my house every week. I had acupuncture every week. I would go, you name it, I've probably done it. Mm-hmm. You know, apart from I think a wig wham up a mountain, you know, <laughs> flotation tank, I'm on it. You yeah. know, homeopathy, Sitting in a stone circle and, you know, kundalini yoga, you name it, I was doing it. But I was also doing lots of really unhealthy things, Mm -hmm. drinking a lot. This culture, that culture, people don't remember how big a drinking culture that culture was, particularly in London in agency life in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, I would start the day with, so this would be my day, okay? I would get up at six. I would go to my private club and I would have a personal trainer and I would train. I would shower and I would have a breakfast meeting with people, probably at about eight. Mm-hmm. I would hit the office about 10. I would work till lunch. I would have a lunch out. That always involved at least one bottle, if not two bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go back to the office and work. At six o'clock, we had a rule that if you were still at your desk, you could go and help yourself from the fridge to a glass of wine. Everybody worked till seven, right? So at six, you're actually sat at your desk drinking. Mm-hmm. And then probably three nights a week, I would go out to an event or to a dinner. Wow. Or to, I'd get home at 11, rinse and repeat. Gosh. Um, and so I, did, I didn't really get to sleep without a sleeping tablet. Um, so it was that very precarious balance mm-hmm. that I was keeping going. Yeah. <laughs> I knew any time uh-huh. that balance could could tip yeah so towards the end of the 90s it became very apparent to me that I couldn't sustain that yeah um particularly because I'd adopted a child and there was one week when I remember it was Friday night and I'd finished and I got home and I realized I hadn't seen him awake since Monday morning gosh and I'm like what 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 why why yeah why am I doing this you know mm-hmm. I didn't adopt this child for this reason yeah um 
so in that moment I said that's it that's the line in the sand mm -hmm. we have to I have to have an exit strategy yeah luckily we sold the business so I was able to exit but that was very unpleasant because then you have to work for somebody else which is hard when you have been the boss, isn't it? With really big targets and, you know, and that was not, that was probably the worst year I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And that truly brought me to my knees, I think, that Gosh. year. Um, and so by, I think it was 2000, 2001, I effectively exited, but I, I was on my knees. And mm -hmm. we, we moved to the Bahamas, which sounds terribly glamorous. Uh, my ex-husband is from the Bahamas. Um, it, it wasn't great for quite some time because I was in a foreign country. I'd lost my identity. I had young children. And with hindsight, I was very not well. Yep. Um, because the breast cancer came quite soon after. Uh -huh. So I thought I'd dodged a bullet, but I... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The body does keep the score and body it carries all that trauma and all totally. that stuff. And it, it's accumulative, isn't it? Totally. So. Yeah. Even though you got out, you had all of that then to oh, it deal was, with. It was festering away. It was like, you know, so, so yeah, that, that caught up with me. And, um, you know, that, that's the wake-up call, isn't it? Mm. Uh, that was the wake-up call for me. Um, but equally, I, I clearly chose a very interesting soul journey. Yes. And it was like hell basically i mean if you if you're familiar with the hero's journey uh it was the belly of the whale it was the dark night of the soul so in an 18 month period from having left you know in a blaze of glory supposedly you know oh she was the girl that the cat that got the cream she sold her company she sold her house um she now lives in the bahamas you, you know which looked fantastic from the outside um, but didn't feel it from the inside. In an 18-month period, my dad had a stroke on my birthday, very bad, and back in the UK, uh, then he tried to kill himself. Oh, God. Uh, and these are all trips back four and a half thousand miles. Kids weren't doing too well because uh, we're in a foreign country. It wasn't great. Um, my ex, with hindsight, wasn't doing very well, I think, because suddenly it was on him mm -hmm. he was the one who had to be the provider yep. and the anchor and his father had died and I think that had sent him into a tailspin and so I thought it was okay but it wasn't mm -hmm. um then six months later I found I had the breast cancer and it was a very nasty one but that's a whole different conversation for another time but I came through it with a lot of soul, a lot of help, a lot of intuition. I trod my own path. I did not have all the treatment they wanted me to have. So, but you know, it takes a lot of time and attention, and that's your number one focus. Mm -hmm. We moved to an out island, which sounds amazing, and actually probably was the best time of my life for quite a remote island in the Bahamas where we had no TV. I got up with the sun and went to bed with the sun. We lived on a 10-acre organic wow. farm on a pink sand beach with a thousand palm trees. Kids hated it. It was so boring. Oh. But it's boring. No TV. It's nothing to do. Um, but I decided I was going to heal as holistically as I could. Amazing. Um, and that was a total soul alignment, soul awakening. 
incredible time for me. Unfortunately, six months after my diagnosis um, and two hurricanes, which we lost everything, Gosh. Uh, I then found out my mum had terminal pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. She started chemo and my dad tried to kill himself again. These all necessitating trips back to England. Yeah. Um, and then I just about got through that and I discovered that my ex had pretty much gone through our life savings. Oh, no. That happened in 18 months. Oh, wow, that's that. a lot to deal with. Quite a lot. You know, yeah. if you've, uh, if you, I work for CBT back in the UK and they do that, you know, like that ACE score or yeah. whatever. And I was like, you know, if it had been like one of those things that you hit at the fair and it lights up the bell at the top, you know, I was getting the bells and whistles and the ringing bells. <laughs> uh -huh. and they're a bit like, oh, you scored really high on this. Yeah. Because then the divorce came. Uh -huh. And then I went back to England and <laughs> just for good measure. Uh, my ex bought a criminal lawsuit against me, um, so it was very messy. Um, and somehow I came through all of that, but I have to say I came very, very, very close to not. I came very... I had one truly dark night of the soul just after my mum had died. Mm. I think this criminal case had been brought against me. I was getting divorced. I was still having cancer treatment. I was back in the UK in a rented house. Um, just realizing how little money we had left. Um, I, I I did literally spend the whole night, you know, looking at six packets of Zopiclone and a bottle of whiskey. And it just seemed like a really good way out. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't do it. But I, you know, I utterly empathize and have so much compassion for people who get to that point. Yes. Because they just want all of that stuff to start. And that's, I think, what it is a lot of the time. It's just, just what in all of the stuff to stop it. It's yeah. not actually, I want to be dead. It's just, I don't know how to deal with all of this yeah, stuff. Just can it, can it stop me? Yeah. Richard Bandler, although I, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't advocate lots of quotes from Richard Bandler because he's probably not the most soulful person no. in the world. <laughs> um, quite brutal in a lot of ways. But he does have one saying, which I think is so true, which is that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yes. But the trouble is when you're in the middle of that problem, that temporary problem, and you've maybe been there for quite a while, it feels permanent. Yes. And I think that's where people get stuck and they feel there is no way out. Yeah. But you obviously did recognise there was a way out and made some shifts. I did. I think I've always had a faith. Well, I don't think I've always had a faith. I have always had a faith. And it's looked like lots of different things. It's been a Christian faith. It's been a very traditional faith. It's been a very woo-woo faith. It's been a very out there faith. It's been all sorts of hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a faith, okay? Uh, a spirituality of faith and otherness, a thing beyond yourself. And that has been my North Star. That has mm -hmm. been my guiding light that has been the thing that even in that darkest time has seen me through that yep. sense of there's something beyond me um, yeah absolutely and I think that makes a lot of sense for me because I know I've always had some sort of faith but I find a lot of the time with my clients that are very anxious very depressed feel very lost it tends to be that there's something at a soul level going on so I tend to work quite transpersonally now with some elements and it's that disconnect from something totally. more, your spirituality, your soul, yourself, who you really are, your real purpose that's bigger than just the nine to five. Yeah. Totally. And, and you feel it and you don't really know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And what was really 
distressing for me was when I came through all of that, I actually came through very strong. I think yeah. I my go-to, you know, if you've done the Four Tendencies quiz mm -hmm. by Gretchen Rubin, which is really great, yeah. I'd really recommend it. Um, I know a lot about myself, you know, the Enneagram, the Four Tendencies. I've had astrology done, you name it, I've had it. Uh, Myers-Briggs. Uh, my tendency is to just push on through. Yes. You know, my tendency <laughs> is to be Bodicea and put mm -hmm. my, or Boudicca, depending on what you prefer, is to put the armor on and push on through. And obviously it gets results, it gets you there, but sometimes it's not the right tendency. Actually sitting with it and allowing it to happen and not doing, for me, not doing something is actually harder than doing. I'm the same. I would <laughs> rather be doing something and being proactive than just sitting with it. I hate that. <laughs> it, takes a lot of, it, it takes a lot of courage and literally sitting on your hands and yeah, and I've really had to work on that. And when I came, I, 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 to all intents and purposes, I bounced back after all of that. I had a second marriage, but that was really awful. I, I then hit the menopause. I was very close to my dad. I moved to live where he lived in the same village in Nottinghamshire. Um, I did get a settlement, so I had a house. I married my childhood sweetheart. It all seemed like a really good idea. I worked for a training and development company and then I ended up being head of marketing and communications for the Leprosy Mission, which is a phenomenal charity. And going to Africa and India and Asia a lot of time with the world's most marginalized people. And in many ways, it was phenomenally um, rewarding. But the menopause really derailed me. Mm -hmm. And... I think the marriage was all about trying to recreate what we had never had or lost. And that was not a very good idea, <laughs> shall I say, with hindsight, um, mm -hmm. to all my friends who were like divorced goddesses and people. Um, it seemed like a very good idea at the time, but it really wasn't. We were very different people. We had very different values. So I'm trying to hang on to the values I have. I'm losing myself through the menopause. My dad then died. Um, for good measure, he died on my 50th birthday. <laughs> It's like, wow. thanks for that. Mm -hmm. um, and that truly was a derailment. Mm -hmm. That truly was, and it is very relevant to what you said earlier, because I felt I'd come through the dark night of the soul. I felt I'd found my soul. I felt I'd found, you know, not the Garden of Eden, but I felt I'd, or Nirvana, but I felt I'd found somewhere really amazing even through the hardest of times and this inner soul and this inner strength and in that time I really felt lost it again yeah and I think to have something and then lose it is actually worse than mm -hmm. never to have it yeah and so you speak about your clients who can't quite grasp it and they know it's there it's almost like there's a wall and it's on the other side of the wall I knew I'd been on the other side of the wall and I was back. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really not so much like before where I'd almost felt like I wanted to just end it all. That was, you know, when they say death like by a thousand cups, uh -huh. that was for me worse because it was, I no, what, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? Yeah. There's nothing left of me. There's nothing left. And I did come through that mm -hmm. um, again, um, many nights of the soul. Yeah. Um, again, it was great 
that I was actually at that time working within a Christian charity. There was a lot of prayer, a lot of support. Um, but I also then segued into what I do now. Yes. Um, and you know as well as I do that when you train in therapy and healing, you you work on yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's the constant thing, isn't it? This is what you do with your whole life when you become aware of this or you become yeah. a therapist. You're always working on yourself and refining yourself. Yes. And it saved me again. Yes. Um, I did a lot of work with relationships because I was repeating that. <laughs> Having come through the second divorce, I was like, I'm not going to repeat this pattern. I'm going to completely change it. And then I did what probably a lot of people do and they go you know 360 degree and they they do the opposite yes and, it's, uh, <laughs> and it seemed like a really good idea for a while and then you think mm, actually I don't really this person doesn't excite me <laughs> <laughs> there were some things about my you know former attractions and you know my, my two ex-husbands that actually I did really like Mm-hmm. And I've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I did a lot of work on relationships. I went to an A-Fest, um, Awesomeness Fest, okay. which is Mind Valley, mm-hmm. um, all about relationships and trained with probably the world's leading relationship experts. So Esther Perel, who's mm-hmm. amazing, um, Dan Savage, um, Sonia Chiquette, who was very spiritual, yeah. uh, Marissa Peer was there, the whole nine yards, really. And to all intents and purposes, I was like, oh, this is really adding to my, you know, therapy modality, <laughs> my understanding of all of this. And it all worked for my, you know, continual personal development. But it actually was working on me. Um, and, yeah, I did a lot of work on me, a lot. Um, I did um, Catherine Woodward Thomas's um, Calling in the One, mm-hmm. which I really, really recommend to anybody who really wants to call in that one person because um you know spoiler alert it starts with you and <laughs> spoiler alert um then I had feng shui on my relationship corner um but boy it worked amazing and, you know and after quite some time of just being me and doing all this work and actually getting to a point ironically which is always what happens when I'm just really happy on my own mm-hmm having a lovely time and I'd created a whole new life yeah. and I was in Newark and I was on the radio and I had practice going and I had a newspaper column and I was traveling and and then of course the one came in uh-huh. and so um that's why I now live in Lincolnshire oh, amazing <laughs> <laughs> on a small holding with three acres and lots of animals oh how lovely yeah. <laughs> But that's quite a contrast then, obviously, to your earlier life if you were living in London and how busy that environment is to now be on a small holding. Well, yes and no. I mean, I had the island in the Bahamas, oh, you yes. forget. Yeah, of course. Um, and my nearest neighbour was two and a half miles away. I mean, Whoa. I lived on a probably a one-mile beach and mm-hmm. I lived there for eight months before wow. I saw anybody else on the beach. Gosh. Um, so that was a phenomenal contrast to, me, <laughs> to living in London. West uh-huh. Hampstead is where I lived at the end. And my, my office mm-hmm. was on the border of Notting Hill Gate. I have a superpower and it takes a long time to work out what your superpowers are. And my superpower is I love wherever I live. Oh, how nice. I can't tell you what a good superpower that is. That's amazing, isn't because it? Because I always make the most and find mm-hmm. what's, what's 
what's the essence and the truth of where I live. So I loved growing up in Nottingham. I loved living in London and I lived in many different London. In mm-hmm. the early 80s, I lived in Tottenham. You know, we see Chas and Dave in the kebab shop. I mean, it was <laughs> glamorous. It was not. Um, I, I lived in some not great areas of London like you do. Yeah. And then I lived in some very nice areas mm-hmm. of London like Maida Vale and West Hampstead. I lived in the Bahamas. I lived in Nassau, which is a much more a, a city and but actually quite a dangerous place to live, mm-hmm. actually. And I didn't particularly love it. I have lots of really good friends there and I love visiting. But, um, you know, like any big city, yeah. uh, it's a city. And then the Out Island, which is, I mean, chalk and cheese. I mean, <laughs> where after the hurricane we didn't have electricity for three weeks mm-hmm. no electricity god and the shop i i cannot cope with supermarkets now i never go to big supermarkets mm-hmm. because the shop was literally and when people would go oh i'll have a brand of shampoo that shop was is there shampoo yeah god. <laughs> the shop was is there dog food uh-huh. <laughs> um and there was nothing else yeah. um and being an island if, if it doesn't come in on ferry or flown mm-hmm. in and when the weather's inclement um nothing, nothing that's yeah so that was a very different contrast but I learned to love it I learned mm-hmm. to be very still I learned to be you know very meditative we yep. used to go for beach walks and we'd create labyrinths mm-hmm. we'd walk labyrinths on the beach oh, and we'd lovely. do yoga on the beach at sunset and and it was everything in a way you know when they dangle those holiday ads in front of you but this was the real McCoy. Mm-hmm. You know, a really tiki bar down a beach and that was it. And they might be frying some fish or not frying some fish. <laughs> You'd get it. But I've lived that life mm-hmm. where literally I didn't wear shoes for two years. Um, and now I absolutely love Lincolnshire. So varied. Mm-hmm. I love the big skies. I love the beach. So I love going to the beach. Mm-hmm. Um where we live, it's mostly surrounded by farmland, but we have three acres, so I have pet sheep, I have pet turkeys, I have chickens, <laughs> I've got dogs and cats. And I just love it. I put just when I lived in the Bahamas, I'd put my flip flops on. Now I put my wellies on. Oh, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And I think it's really nice the way you've said that sort of what are your superpowers. So obviously to the listeners, if they were listening and thinking, Oh, what's my superpower? What tips could you give them in helping to discover that? Yes, it's a, it's a really good one. I mean, I'm I'm quite a big fan of, um, is it called Ikagi? You know, the Japanese um, form of finding out, <laughs> you know, what makes you happy. And if you Google that, um, you effectively draw three circles. Okay. And you kind of, within one, put, you know, what do I love doing? Mm-hmm. In another, you put, what am I good at? Yeah. And in another one... I, I think it's actually labelled what does the world need, but mm-hmm. you could kind of put, you know, how did that how does that help others or what yeah. makes me feel good about how I pass that on? And you end up with something in the middle. Oh, you know? yeah. And that's very much about maybe you, your profession, where you're going. I I think it's as simple as you just sit with and you think, Well, what makes me truly happy? Mm-hmm. When do I feel authentic? When do I feel I'm not having to wear that mask? And goodness knows, you you know, from the early conversation, I wore that mask for a really, really long time. I mean, it took me a really long time to work out I'm shy. Yes. I I had a career in PR. People are like, you shy? It's like, well, yes, I'm 
I'm an extroverted introvert. Yeah. And when I think back to my childhood and think back even to my degree, I did an English literature degree. I mean, what's more dull than sitting in really rubbish <laughs> rented accommodation for three years when it's lovely outside reading War and Peace and every every <laughs> book you, you, you can read? This is not the degree of an extroverted. <laughs> that's performing art or something else mm -hmm. no that's you know thinking deep thoughts about Dostoevsky or you know metaphysical poetry um and as a child because I was ill a lot I spent a lot of time missing school and being at home and I'm old enough that you know we didn't have daytime tv or mm -hmm. gadgets and so that meant reading or, yeah. or writing mm -hmm. or drawing and so I realized that they were always the things that brought me comfort, gave me solace, gave me joy. Yep. Um, and I was very happy where I grew up as a kid. And that also contrasted greatly. I mean, when I was very little, we lived on a very deprived area. We mm -hmm. were the we, like Coronation Street. We were the corner shop. Right. That was pulled down for slum clearance. Right. Okay. We had an outside toilet. Mm -hmm. Um. And then my parents did quite well and we ended up in a, you know, quite nice suburb. Yep. But I realised they always felt like outsiders. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so it looked good. We we lived in a nice house and other people on the road were doctors and lawyers. But mum and dad were like, they had a really rubbish car and we were the grocers. You yeah. Know? Um, we were the tradespeople. Mm -hmm. um, but I know the house was a happy house. Yeah. And, you know, love was there. Mm -hmm. and food and all the things that anchor you so I think just think back to when did you feel safe when did you feel happy what did you know what brings you joy mm -hmm. how can you transfer and that will be your yeah oh I love that that's brilliant <laughs> I'm gonna have a reflect on that I think it's always good to revisit these things as yeah. well because we grow and learn and evolve over time. So in terms of obviously the clients you work with now, obviously you've given a little bit of an explanation of the type of therapies you do. But still, from my experience, this is so vast. We all tend to have different specialisms or areas or types of people that we work with. So what are the types of people or situations or issues that you tend to specialise in? Yes. And I'm, I'm sure like you, you know, we're trained like a GP, aren't we? Yeah. We're like, and we go, yeah, you can do anything and everything. <clears throat> and in the early days, um, you know, that did look like all, all sorts. Um, and you start to think, well, that's not maybe for me or or you you tend to just really resonate. So probably not surprisingly, I really resonate with people who are having lives that look very much like the life I used to. Yep. So that life where they look like they've got it all going on mm -hmm. and, you know, they may be the CEO of a business I have quite a lot of clients in London yeah I have um, quite a London clientele and I actually go down to London mm -hmm. I actually go to their homes yeah I, I used to have a, a clinic in London but after lockdown I let it go uh -huh. now I just go to their home um or we do it on zoom so yeah. it's all, all good so and of course I do deal with lots of other things a lot and, and look and they don't have to be in London they, they can be anywhere but um yes my probably real area of expertise is those people who do look like it's all great from the outside it looks great but from the inside they're like is this it yeah <laughs> is this it you know is this as good as it gets you know yeah. that film with Jack Nicholson is mm -hmm. this as good as it gets yeah 
or there's a talking head song, you know, once in a lifetime, this is not my beautiful house, this is not my beautiful home. So it is the, you know, and I have actually worked with a couple of celebs and people whose names I can't mention, a sports person, a leading sports person. So they're people who don't want people to know yes. um, that they're probably having therapy or coaching um, because they, they are like the head of their organization or, you know, maybe even quite high profile. And it looks like it's all great, but it's not on the inside. They feel empty. They don't feel enough. They feel like an imposter. They're like, I did all this and thought I would have joy or fulfillment when I got to this point. I don't. Um, they, they kind of feel they're living the wrong life yeah. often. Or there's maybe aspects of their life that are great and another aspect that really isn't. Mm-hmm. So lots of things are great. Their health really is. Lots of things are great. Their relationship is. Lots of things are great. They don't really know that they want to do that career anymore. They, their mojo is gone. And so that um realignment that balance that finding your purpose finding yourself finding finding your truth finding your joy um as i say the strap line having a life that feels as good on the inside as on the outside that that and i've fallen into that yeah like and really because obviously when they sit down with me they go oh you really get that mm-hmm. and i'm like i've lived that yeah <laughs> i've walked that uh-huh. path not essential as you know um, but I think in this context, they do feel very reassured by that. So, it's really helpful, isn't it, yeah. as well, to know that, do you know what, you've got that experience, you understand properly where they're coming from, because people want it. someone else to be able to relate and understand, but also you're showing by example that you've moved through that and that you are in a good place. Absolutely, and often there are people who aren't getting a lot of, um, well, they don't, they're not seeking it, but they wouldn't get a lot of sympathy from other people. No. <laughs> They'd go, well, what's wrong with their life? Mm-hmm. They've got that lovely house and... You know, if, if that brought you joy, there'd be a lot of celebrities still alive today, wouldn't yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. And I think it comes back to our society again. We we put a lot of pressure, but also a lot of importance on the external things. Absolutely. The car, the house, those other things that we acquire in life, but we don't often look enough within. No. And I think no matter what you do or don't have, you're never going to be fulfilled or happy in life if you don't feel good about yourself. Truly. Absolutely. So, yeah, I would say that's probably at least half of everything I do, maybe more. I've not really sat down and mm-hmm. and worked it out, just kind of maybe thinking about some of the clients. Because I do like VIP coaching as well, where people work with me for a longer period of time. And that definitely usually tends to be that territory. Yeah. Because it's a bit more esoteric and it's like it might take a few months to really get to that place. But, yeah, I, you know, I... I can do the smoking. I do quite a lot of weight loss yeah, um, because I trained as a weight loss. Also, when I was in the 90s in PR, I was bulimic. Right, okay. So it was that time of, oh, everybody's got to be 5-0. And when you're having nine meals out a week (laughs) (laughs) and not really getting maybe as much exercise as you should, um the pounds you know were coming on mm-hmm. so I had dengue fever right, which okay. is like malaria but worse uh-huh. um, yeah. and I was ill for seven weeks and I lost 23 pounds right oh gosh and I went from probably being a size a UK size 12 um you know around about nine stone or so to being less than seven stone gosh and I stayed there because I loved it because mm-hmm. that was the time of the you know super skinny yeah 
I could get into like all the, you know, reject designer Mm -hmm. (laughs) like stuff. And in that world I was in, it was heralded, you know, when people constantly go, oh, goodness, look at you. Apart from my mum, who was like, what is wrong with you? You look like a scarecrow. Yeah. (laughs) And of course you don't see it. Uh When I look back on photos now, I'm like, boy, was I skinny. Look at me. And, you know, all all those bones in your chest. But, and then when the pounds started to come on, because obviously I'm out of the illness and Mm -hmm. starting the brain, as you know, goes, oh, I've got a brilliant plan for you to stay. (laughs) You can still go out for all those lunches and dinners, but you know, you're just not going to keep it down. Mm -hmm. And so I became bulimic. So yes. So I do weight loss. Uh, because having had an eating disorder, I know about how troubling, you know, not getting that right can be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think you've been through such a journey. So. Wow. Still going. Yeah. And that, that's the thing, isn't it? It's a lifelong journey. Yeah. And I think that's what I really want to share as we do this podcast. It's all about going through that journey together, sharing those ideas and experiences to help one another. Absolutely. And I think we are about to come to an end now. So have you got any final thoughts or messages that you could leave with the audience that perhaps might help or inspire them in their lives? Well, I belong to quite a few chat groups and I know that people are really struggling still. Uh, We've come through some extraordinary times Mm -hmm. filled with fear and the unknown and it's still going on. We are in a world full of conflict and contrasts. And even if you're doing relatively okay, it makes it, particularly if you've got kids, and it makes it, you know, quite a difficult world to navigate. And so in the last three or four years, I've been on a real soul alignment journey and mm-hmm. I've done a lot of soul work about what we spoke about earlier, about that thing beyond you, about that thing that, and it can be prayer for you. It could be just nature or a walk in nature. But it's about that beyond. It's about something beyond. And I've always been very, well, I didn't really realize it, but I'm very clairvoyant and very sensitive. And I used to fear it. And I have embraced it in the last few years. And it actually helps with my practice. It creates a level of intuition and knowing that I do don't believe you can ever be trained in but it means that you have that inner ballast that inner guidance that that feeling that however difficult it will be you can navigate it and so I would really advocate for people go within learn what your superpower is learn what brings you joy trust yourself trust your intuition and also seek something soulful beyond you be it nature be it god be it whatever religion you are but be it something i think those two things will see you through anything amazing that's i know i agree completely so yes thank you so much for being here today it's been really lovely to chat to you you're welcome and to our listeners thank you ever so much for tuning in and have a great day whatever you're doing and i shall speak to you again soon take care and bye-bye for now if you enjoyed this podcast please make sure you subscribe. If you would like to find out more about the therapies that we provide and the training we offer, please visit our website, www.tranquil-awakenings.co.uk. You can also find us on social media.